from Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. No matter what kind of business you run, sooner or later you'll find yourself having one of those seemingly boring business conversations around safety. If you're a chef, it might be safety in the kitchen. If you're a warehouse worker, it might be about using the right equipment to manage heavy loads. And if you're a construction worker, it might be about having access to hard hats, safety goggles, or the process of dealing with large machinery. These seemingly boring components are actually vital for the health and well-being of staff, and getting them wrong can be costly. So making the process of safety compliance easier is actually a big business. Lou Kinnear is the founder and CEO of Safety Culture, a company which is helping businesses manage their safety and compliance. It might seem a bit boring, but that business is now worth over $440 million. Safety Culture uh, built a checklist app called iAuditor and um, that became, you know, a checklist app that was used all over the world for people to, to basically manage standards and maintain um, quality across their workplaces. So anything that they basically check regularly, whether it be from toilets or whether it be from like the end of a production line at, at Tesla or somewhere, then um, that's where they use checklists and, and iAuditor. Luke's journey to being the CEO of a $440 million company started in Townsville, a tropical city on Australia's North Queensland coastline. It's in the heart of the Great Barrier Reef and has a population of around 200,000 people. We've got a, a university and a, and a hospital and, uh, and you know, a fairly big army base and um, a range of different sort of government facilities there. So it's kind of this mix of uh, you know, a little bit of mining from out west. Um, we've got the Australian Institute of Marine Science uh, where um, we lead a lot of the marine biology research in the world. And so Townsville's this kind of fusion of uh, you know, people from all different walks of life and uh, you, just, you, know, you never know who you're going to meet. Julian Assange lived in Townsville for for a while, so did Greg Norman uh, when he was growing up. So uh, there's a whole range of different people that have come out of Townsville. Like many people who come on this show, Luke is an entrepreneur through and through. He started his first business when he was just 12 years old, mowing lawns for people in his neighbourhood. We grew up on acreage, so the idea of lawn mowing with a push mower when you're 12 on an acreage is uh, is probably not the best idea. But you know, I'd, I'd mow a whole acre for fifty dollars, <laughs> and uh, it would take me about five hours or so. But um, it was, um, I think, always something that I, I thought about, and uh, I was constantly trying different things. I delivered pamphlets when I was about uh, 11, I suppose, just before I started mowing lawns, and um, I was constantly looking for stuff, and um, you know, school was kind of boring for me so I was trying to figure out ways to to be able to do things like I guess I grew up with my mum and and we never had a lot of money and so it was always the thing preventing us from doing stuff was being able to afford to do it and so I was always coming up with creative ways to try and make a dollar so that then we can go and do the fun stuff and uh, I think um, you know that's what fueled a lot of it. Luke really wasn't that into school so when he was 16 he made the decision to leave and go and get a job. And he soon started running his first real business. I took over this glass recycling business where I'd drive my brother's um, ute around to all the all the bars and nightclubs and collect all the empty glass each morning at about 6am and it'd be, you know, beer and, and spirits and stuff dripping all over me and I'd take it back to this depot and then sort out the coloured and the clear glass and put it on a train and send it down to Brisbane so it could be recycled. And, you know, it wasn't probably my best idea, but uh, it certainly gave me a bit of a taste of what um, running a business was like. I had friends who'd come after school and help sort the glass and, and uh, I'd go around and pick it up each morning. So that was when I was 16. And then I managed to get a job uh, with a uh, local businessman who was who was a really good uh, mentor for me, and that continued for twenty odd years. And uh, he he took me under his wing and um, just taught me lots of basics. You know, a dollar saved is better than a dollar made because you don't have to pay tax on on the saved dollar, and just really simple things and and a lot of basic stuff that helped me. And so, you know, I worked for him for a while, and then went out and tried a few things myself, and then ended up going back and working with him. I kind of pitched this idea to him that he was a baby boomer approaching his sixties and. Uh, 
he had these businesses that he was tied to. And I said, well, how about you know, I run these businesses for you and um, we split the profit. You know, I was 17 years old and he kind of let me down gently and said, I don't think you're quite ready for that. But uh, at the end of the day, we ended up on a sort of co-management deal where we were both running this um, three different businesses that he had. And um, one was a, a 24-hour mobile service station. Another one was a, a car auto parts yard. And there was a uh, second service station as well and so when I was pretty young I was uh, all of a sudden you know managing people and stuff. Bill Smith is his name funnily enough and uh, he um, yeah he, he just would take the time to teach me whatever and um, Saturday mornings was always my favourite because it was just Bill and I at the uh, at the auto parts business and uh, I would just um, ask him you know every sort of question and how he got started and all the old stories he you know couldn't get a bank loan to start his first business and had to you know work this um, in the dirt on his own fixing old cars and stuff and just um, crazy things I guess I found inspiring and, and gave me the belief that you know it's possible if you set your mind on something you can go after it and do it and um, yeah he taught me a great deal and that's why I, I kept seeing him and, and chatting with him we had a friendship that lasted you know until he passed away and uh, yeah it was it was pretty special what do you think it was that he saw in you as a young kid uh, that sort of gave him the confidence to allow you to take on some of these responsibilities at such a young age yeah, I'm not sure. I, I definitely, uh, you know, was was driven. I had a strong work ethic. I could I could work long hours from a really young age, and so um, I would put the time in, and I would ask lots of questions, and um, and just want to learn and and apply what I'd learn. And so I think he kind of you know responded to that, and um, could see that every time he'd give me a little bit, I would take it a lot further and develop it even more. And so um, I was constantly trying to improve um, things and solve problems. And so uh, I think that was the sorts of things and. When I, I actually did a week's work before I got that job in a in a palm farm, which is like palm trees, and they, they grow all these big palm trees, and we had to dig them out of the ground, and it was the hardest work I think I'd ever done. I had all these blisters on my hand, and when I went for the job interview, uh, I was 16, you know, just after I left school, I went for the job interview, and I had all these blisters and callisters on my hand, and he actually had a look at my hands. He said, can I see your hands? And he goes, gee, you like a bit of hard work, don't you? And it was probably the only time I'd worked that hard. So, um, you know, I think he, um, he, he saw a few things that he, he liked, and the way we went. Luke managed Bill's businesses for around two years, and the overarching company was called Wade's Distributors, named after Bill's son. But Wade didn't really have much of an interest in it. And so um, I was managing that with Bill for a couple of years and um, it was about that time that I decided I wanted to to head off and um, go down south. And I actually got my mum who left Telstra and got her to, to buy into one of the businesses was kind of the service station and an oil distributorship for Castrol Oil, which was a small business that had like two staff. And so mum bought into that, I think, for about $30,000 and um, out of her superannuation. And uh, mum continued to run that and and actually built it up into a, a reasonable little business. And I went down south and uh, got a job as a, a trainee private investigator and that was sort of the first exposure into the, the workers' comp industry and um, seeing what happened when people got injured at work, which was pretty interesting. Luke was 19 when he moved and his new job was investigating workers' compensation claims when there were concerns that perhaps someone was trying to claim insurance they weren't entitled to. A lot of those people were you know, genuinely injured and, and we generally wouldn't see those people. But sometimes you'd get um, fraudulent or exaggerated claims and they would get referred to uh, through to us to a surveillance team and it would be our job to just go out and, and see what these people are doing. Often they're working other jobs or they never were injured in the first place. And so it was basically people who were rorting the system and we'd go and follow them around and sit in the in the back of the car and uh, you know wait for them to come out and then go and follow wherever they went and film them. And it was a pretty fun job. I, I actually really enjoyed that a lot and uh, had a lot of fun and and different things happen over the years. What was sort of like the weirdest claim that you had to investigate? 
we would see all sorts, but you'd see people who would like um, have a claim in and also claim one guy got $70,000 worth of renovations done to his house because he needed wheelchair access to the bathrooms and, and everything. And um, and then he ended up winning a triathlon and we filmed him. Um, the firm we filmed him winning it and uh, he was completely able-bodied. And so we would see crazy stuff like that. You'd see people getting kicked out of home, their clothes getting thrown in the front yard and, and uh, you know, by a distressed wife or something and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, you know, had um, people reach through because you're often sitting in the back seat. This is the thing a lot of people don't realise. This is kind of a secret, I guess, in the in the surveillance industry. But um, you're always in the back seat of the car when you're doing surveillance. You're very rarely in the front seat and uh, no one can see in the back seat. You have stuff on the windows or whatever. But... Um, uh, you know, I had people um, reach through the front window, which is down a little bit, and grab the wallet out of the centre console, and uh, you know stuff like that. Where then you spend you know the next two hours chasing someone around trying to get your wallet back. So all sorts of just you know uh, random things would happen, and uh, you know we're observing the world, so you'd see see you know all sorts of odd stuff. This is like while you're sitting in the back seat of the car, someone's like reaching in and grabbing your wallet out of the front seat. Oh. Of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, people crash into your car, they think there's no one in it, and uh, and then you pop out and you're like, okay. And so, you know, just just about everything that happens in life, you know, you see happen. People sitting on your car, they think no one's in it, it's a parked car, kids come up and, you know, they throw balls at the windows and just, you know, random things that happen when people think cars are empty and nobody's in there, no one's going to know. So, yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. After working as an investigator for three months, Luke found himself at a Tony Robbins seminar, which sent him down a very different path. It was called um, Unleash the Power Within at the Horden Pavilion in Sydney, and it was just incredible. And one of the things that, that we did at that seminar was wrote down goals, and one of the goals I thought I, I wanted to achieve was how to make $40,000 in a month. And um, and so I wrote down this crazy goal, and uh, when the seminar ended, the music stopped, and I kind of sat there staring at this goal. I thought... Uh, oh my goodness, I have to actually go and do this now. And so I, I walked in and quit my job at the surveillance company in Parramatta and um, only three months into it. And uh, they were like, you're just getting getting the hang of this. Like, why are you doing this? And I uh, couldn't understand, but I was like, no, nah, I've written this crazy goal down and now I have to figure out how to do it. And I literally, I can remember sitting in the McDonald's car park in Parramatta and um, thinking, like, now what? I, I had zero idea on what to do to make $40,000 in a month. And I just quit my job because I was earning about $800 a week there and I knew I couldn't do that so yeah it's just the amazing feeling I think of um, not in a good way but this feeling of what the heck have you just done and not knowing what to do. The answer Luke had to earning $40,000 in a month was boxing. A friend of mine, he was a plumber, and he'd talked about doing like this tough man challenge that um, had happened in Townsville, funnily enough, when we were growing up, but I'd never been to it. It was like a no-rules boxing competition. And that was the only thing I could think of. So I rang Steve and said, hey, do you want to do this uh, boxing tournament that we talked about once? And uh, he was like, you serious? And I said, yeah. And he said, no way. And so, um, yeah, I went around Sydney. I went around Sydney trying to organise it, literally walking into pubs and thinking, I could set up a boxing ring in here and uh, spent about a week uh, doing that and um, like had no idea what I was doing. And I ended up uh, booking the Penrith Rodeo Complex out at Penrith. And I thought all the all the people in Western Sydney, they'd love to see this. And so after I secured the venue, I had, I think, about $600 in the bank and uh, the Boxing Federation of New South Wales said, you can't do that here and uh, we won't allow it. And so, you know, that was kind of my first setback, I think, and uh, for the for that particular project and uh, I rang the Northern Territory government or the Boxing Association and they said yeah you can do whatever you want up here and so I loaded my stuff in the car and started driving and uh, you know ran out of money before I got there because I'd put a deposit down on the other venue in Sydney and all that stuff and so you know, I had to go and wait at a service station I had no money and uh, wait this guy was there and I, I pitched to him I said I'm this young guy this is my dream I've set this crazy goal of making 40000 a month I've got to figure out how to do it and and um, I'm trying to get to Darwin 
someone to do this thing and I need a tank of fuel, can you please help me? And he was like, well, I'm not the manager, you got to wait for the manager. So I had to pitch again an hour later. But um, and the long story short is <laughs> I got to Darwin, I slept in my car for a month and organised this Tough Man Challenge up there and uh, I'd go into the hotel on the beach run and unplug their swimming pool filter and 10 o'clock at night when the pool closed and I'd plug in my mobile phone so I could charge it and have to get back by 6am in the morning before the cleaner would come and uh, then I could ring people and organise, you know, all the uh, the fighters and the staff had security and all these things, you know, and 415 cases of beer, all on credit. So I racked up $22,000 in debt in, uh, in a few weeks to do this thing. Well, I mean, that's a lot of debt to take on when you're someone that a couple of weeks or whatever before that, you're uh, begging a fuel station <laughs> owner for a tank of fuel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, I was burning the bridge and swimming for the island. And uh, and so, you know, I just kept on focusing on it each day. But the thing was, people would be like, you know, that's amazing how, how you could try and do that. And I think people expect some big gust of wind or momentum every day to be driving you, but it's just not the case. There's nothing. I would wake up each day in my car and go, okay, now what am I going to do? And, you know, I organised everything over the phone and I was this baby-faced, you know, 20-year-old from from uh, Sydney that they no one had met. And so um, they just thought I was some big organiser. And uh, and so on the day, you know, people actually got to see me and they're like, who is this kid and what have we done? And, uh, and you know, so, yeah, I, I said gates open at 6 and it started at 7 and on the radio, I got radio advertising and stuff. Pretty, uh, pretty crazy situation, and then of course it rained because it was in November in Darwin. It was monsoon season, and uh, and uh, at about uh, I don't know twenty past six, the DJ came up and said, "I need six hundred dollars cash before I start playing any music," and I didn't have the cash, and so I was like, "Well, just give me a bit of time." And uh, I think he started to worry, but. Um, thankfully, at about uh, 10 to 7, you know, there was a massive queue of people and they were all turning up late and uh, a security guard came up to me with a handful of cash and said, where do you put all the money? And I hadn't even thought about where to put the money. And so I just grabbed $600 <laughs> of it, gave it to the DJ. I said, start playing your music, dude. And away it went. And it took in $64,000 in in five hours and it just kept going. And uh, I was stuffing money everywhere. I ended up driving my car in the middle of the crowd and putting money all under the seats of the car and everywhere because I didn't know where else to put it and yeah and it cost 22 to do it so walked away with $42,000 a month after I set the goal and uh, after that I thought wow what's next that's kind of uh, like proof of the you know what determination can get you and <laughs> you, you set about this goal and uh, you know despite the odds you still made it happen yeah, it's probably served me more than any other lesson in life, I think. The, the idea that, you know, you could walk out the door with just your shirt on your back and you'll be okay. That's a really powerful um, self-belief to have. And I think that's what that taught me was um, in, in we live in an age and a time where you can literally, you know, go and do anything. And I think you know, Australia's been built on immigrants and, and a lot of countries have been built that way. But you hear some of those stories, you know, often I get in a cab and talk to cabbies or these days Uber or whatever. And and people have started from nothing um, many, many times. And uh, I think once you get that sense that it'll be okay and you don't have to be fearful, um, then you can take some risk and, and really go and have some fun. And so um, it served me a lot along the way. And coming up after the break, Luke's determination leads him to start a new company. This is Building a Unicorn, I'm Christopher Lawson. After staging his boxing tournament, Luke went back to being a private investigator. It was kind of a failsafe that he knew he could rely on. He was good at it, although that didn't stop his entrepreneurial endeavours. On a trip to San Francisco, he came across a system called CAPS, which was for locking the wheels of shopping trolleys to stop people stealing them from car parks. 
I spent seven months doing all this research on shopping trolleys and, you know, I could tell you all these stats that, you know, the, the supermarket in Canley Vale, they would lose all their trolleys every six months, you know, t- 220 trolleys. And then there was like other major retailers would have um, one manager stealing trolleys from another manager's side at midnight with a truck because, you know, their lost trolleys came out of their budget. There's all this crazy trolley theft happening that I never knew about. And, um, and so I secured the rights to that and then spent seven months trying to convince the retailer to um to implement it and no one wanted to because they said well you know all those supermarkets are always close together and if they stop people from taking a trolley outside the car park then people might get annoyed and go to the next supermarket and so no one could do it and um and now 15 years later that system goes in in pretty much every every supermarket gets built and uh, I think I was just a bit ahead of the time so that one didn't work and uh, I got back into the surveillance game for a bit and uh, and then I ended up getting a, a gym a guy I was living with. He was a consultant in the fitness industry. So I ended up uh, taking over a, a gym on the central coast of New South Wales called Ultimate Fitness and uh, huge big aerobics floor, squash courts and all this kind of stuff. And um, and yeah, it was I didn't know what I was doing. And so I was there for about uh, 10 months or something <laughs> and realized, uh, you know, this is not easy either. And uh, and I got back into the, the investigation game and that's when I stayed for a few years then, ended up managing a team in Sydney and uh, sort of working my way up and I was doing stuff as well I was, I was selling um, footage news footage to Channel 9 and, and 7 and stuff in Sydney when I was down here and also um, photography for the um, Sydney Morning Herald Daily Telegraph and things like that and so um, I was always you know doing side hustles and um, trying to just I, I enjoyed doing lots of different things I think as much as anything it wasn't always about trying to make money it was about just um, you know experiences and trying different things and then once I got back to Townsville um, I gave mum a bit of a hand for a while in the oil business and then uh, opened a photography studio um, with a mate and uh, we were doing weddings and commercial photography and stuff but uh, I pretty quickly got bored with that and um, and that's when I kind of uh, yeah, started to think well I don't want to go back into the workers comp investigation industry but perhaps I could be part of the solution and help people avoid getting injured and, and that's how safety culture originally started. The name safety culture would come later but Luke started his new business, which he called Wade's Business Solutions, because people in Townsville knew about Wade's distributors, so Luke figured that would be a great name. And he started off selling policy documents to businesses who couldn't afford to get their own documents written. It was a basic policy manual. So it was a set of policies for training staff on how to how to behave. There was manual handling policies for lifting things. There was email policies, just what I would, today I would call that sort of, you know, I guess unnecessary stuff. But back then it was a basic, very basic. And then we started producing training documents for like specific tasks around like how to work on a roof or how to dig up a road. If you're playing fiber optic cable, you know, you're going to have you know, barricades for pedestrians and all these kind of things. And so, you know, we started building what became a library of about 600-odd documents that um, people could buy and typically, before then, they would they would pay consultants, you know, maybe eight hundred to a thousand dollars a document. Whereas I was paying former government inspectors to write the documents and then um, putting them online for eighty dollars each. And so, you know, I'd have to sell ten of them to cover the costs. But that became a really good business because people needed this stuff and they didn't want to. They couldn't afford often small businesses. They couldn't afford to pay a thousand dollars for every document, for each piece of machinery or every task they do. Wade's business solutions started to gain real traction, and in 2007, Luke realised that the name had to change, and the way the business ran needed to evolve. We had a telemarketing model where we'd ring businesses and um, annoy them to say, hey, you know, we can come and do a free gap analysis on on what paperwork you have and things. And it was just a terrible business model. And um, that ran for about three years. And it's just, you know, there's businesses that just take energy from you and there's others that give you energy. And and that was one that just, you know, took energy because you're trying to convince people that weren't interested in what you had to buy it. And I made a decision at some point. I'm like, I never want to have to sell anything to anyone ever again. And let's build great things that people want to buy. So at that point, like you were getting on the phone, you're calling these companies, you're pitching them the product, you're getting a lot of knockbacks and rejection. How did you realize that, okay, well, the thing that I need to do is I need to ditch that process, I need to change the name, and I need to go all online? Yeah, it's a good question. I went to a conference in Atlanta, so I was never afraid to jump on a plane and and go to learn stuff. And so I went to a search 
um, engine optimization conference, an SEO conference in Atlanta um, on the east coast of the US. And um, I saw you know, all these random different businesses that were um, really doing well from just basically finding the market through Google and, and optimizing their keywords and landing pages and all that kind of stuff. And then understanding conversion and driving the funnel. And I kind of just got some ideas from that and uh, came back and, and thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And at the time, I actually um, had surgery on one of my knees. And I was, uh, I came home, had surgery, and I was laid up for a couple of months. And uh, and that's when I thought, well, I can't walk around, but I can at least, uh, you know, build some microsites and, and do stuff, write content. And so that was kind of the start of it. And then, um, you know, away it went. That, that was a very different business from, from that day on. And were you working on your own at this point or had you hired uh, other staff? It had gone up to about 20-odd people, I think, when we had the telemarketing business. And then it now had gone back to maybe two people, I think, something like that, myself and a couple others. I had Margaret, who's still with me today. She was working from home in Brisbane. And, um, and we had Karen, who was doing our accounts and stuff. And so there was a couple of people, not many. And... Um, you know, we'd scaled the business back. It was so easy. It was kind of business where you'd wake up in the morning and, and there was more money in the bank than when you went to sleep. Like these kind of cliche uh, terms that, you know, all these um, marketers and that throw around and whatever you, people try and sell their, their ideas to people, they're kind of always throwing these cliche terms around. But that was something, you know, I guess I narrowed my criteria for what I wanted to do because I tried all different things. It was like, I don't have to sell stuff. I want to have something that people want to buy. Um, I need to have something that, um, you know, works while you're sleeping. Um, And, you know, all these different sort of pieces of the criteria, I guess, came together for that business to start to really thrive. Safety culture, despite having a new name, was still figuring out that one idea that would help it achieve scale. And Luke says they threw a bunch of concepts at the wall before landing on one which had traction. We had a training platform that I built in 2007. So that was for training staff at work. And no one really used that. It was it was built as a Flash platform for those who remember Flash. So that wasn't great. And then um, in 2010, I built um, we built a document management portal for people to manage all these documents that they were buying off us. And so it was like, hey, you pay a monthly subscription, and and um, then you can uh, have all your documents in one place. And that was terrible as well. Nobody used that either. Luke was also working as a videographer for none other than Tony Robbins and was being exposed to some really successful celebrities. And he says that role helped shape his thinking. During this period of time, Apple released their iPhone, and suddenly there was this large uptake of people starting to spend an awful lot of time on their smartphones. And this trend sent off a light bulb in Luke's brain. I started to think about, you know, mobile first and maybe people could run their businesses on their phone eventually. And so in 2011, I went out to James Cook University in Townsville. A friend's wife worked out there who organised someone from the IT department, um, Professor Ian Atkinson, who leads their sort of IT research team. And uh, he sat down and and a couple of others and um, introduced me to someone. I told them, I said, here's here's what I want want to do. I want to build an app. And um, it was actually for doing like risk assessments before you do a job. So before you, you dig up a road or before you turn off the power, you have to assess all these sort of steps, you know. And so they introduced me to Alan Stevenson, who dropped out of James Cook Cooney and um, was working at the youth detention centre. And Alan um, turned up at my house, came through the front door, and we sat down on the kitchen bench and started designing an app called IJSA. And we built that and released it, and nobody used it. It was terrible. And um, I think we had like <laughs> 70 downloads. Was it the name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. But I think just the app was too restrictive. And so, um, you know, we just chatted to a couple of people. And um, and we actually one of the customers was Lendlease, and it was a free app, so they didn't pay anything. But um, we went down to Melbourne to one of their sites, and they said, "Look, your app's okay, but it could be better." But really, what we want is you to get rid of all this paperwork. And they pointed to like 250 binders on the wall of all these contractor paperwork, and um, and I kind of went, "Yeah, that sounds too hard." And so we had to kind of start unpicking the complexity, and um, you know, every customer's got different once and so it was overwhelming for a while and we kind of sat back and went the common thread through all workplaces not just in Australia but all around the world 
was that people have to check things regularly to make sure that they're okay. You know, the status of something is you check it. Is it okay? If it's a if it's a Starbucks store, you want to check it each morning. Are the, are the tables all laid out correctly? Are, you know, the bench tops clean, whatever. And so the checklist was the thing that everyone was already using. You know, the, every McDonald's bathroom had a checklist on the wall. When it was clean, who buy, their initial, the time, etc. And so I thought, okay, if that's the tool that universally is being used, then that's what we should build. And so a few months later, the first version of iAuditor came out and we said, like, we got 72 downloads or something, I think, on the other one. So we're like, if we got 10,000 downloads in a year, like, if we could do that, that would be amazing. And uh, we got 10,000 in a few weeks and, uh, you know, away it went. Luke says that initial customer base was all organic. They didn't invest in any kind of marketing. People were just finding iAuditor in the app store, downloading it, and then using it. You're getting all these downloads, um, but like downloads don't necessarily, you know, create a sustainable business. Um, <laughs> but was there a point where you realized that you were on to a winning idea, that the people that were downloading this really loved it and that, you know, you, you were actually creating something that was going to be a sustainable stream of revenue? Yeah, I think traction is the key to success in business and this had traction. We had customers emailing us from all around the world and and saying, you know, hey, we're an airline in South America, we're using your app and we're checking all the aircrafts and it's amazing and we're taking photos and doing all this stuff and producing reports. And so it became obvious that, that this was something and it was a free app and so there was no money. And then we then they said, well, instead of a PDF report with all our photos and all the answers to the questions, what if we could have a word report? And so we're like, aha, here's, this is where the magic's going to happen. We'll charge $7 one time uh, for a word export unlock feature. And uh, and so, you know, we put that in and of course it, it made, I don't know, $1,500 a month or something. And so um, that was the first monetization we had. And then people would contact us and say, hey, I lost my device. Like, where is everything backed up? And we're like, well, do you back up your device to your computer because there's no cloud or anything? And so then it was like I turned to Al and I'm like, we need to find someone who can build a cloud. And um, and so you know we built a cloud and uh, and and uh, away it went and charged five dollars a month for the cloud and people could back their stuff up. And of course that didn't work very well. And we had to re- rebuild it and you know all that sort of dramas. Then it became a real engineering based company and we just had to get as many people as we could. This early growth was enough for Luke to start pitching the business for potential investment, although it was a trip to Google's I.O. conference that really set things in motion. I actually pitched to Blackbird at a Google meetup night in Sydney. I came down and and, uh, Bill Barty, one of the founding partners of Blackbird, I pitched to him and said, you know, we're doing this app. And he he showed, you know, he was polite, but he showed no interest, (laughs) which is typical, you know, VCs. And so um, I went back home and then uh, one of the guys, you know, we had about five or six guys on the garage and and, uh, working on stuff. And uh, Google I.O. was on in the US. And one of them said, you know, I got... I got a ticket for it. I want to go. I was like, yeah, on one condition that whatever they release, you buy it. Like, we got to get it. Whatever it is, if they release something, you got to get it. And so that was the year they released Google Glass. And um, you had to be a US citizen. You had to jump through all these hoops. And they were really hard to get. And so, anyway, we got through all the hoops. We got the first pair of Google Glass outside the US. And so, came back to Australia. And it was in Melbourne the next day. And uh, we were down there. And there was a, a conference we're at. And an ABC journalist, He's noticed them and uh, he does like the tech show on ABC. Anyway, he, he noticed it and, um, you know, people are like, oh my God, is that Google Glass? And the next thing, you know, I was on the project on Channel 10 and on national TV and, and uh, all of a sudden Blackbird became interested and um, we were talking about, you know, building this checklist app on Google Glass, which we had no idea how to do at that point. And, uh, you know, that's when Blackbird said, hey, we want to come up to Townsville and Rick Baker walked down the driveway and uh, here we were, six guys in the garage trying to build an app. This was the middle of 2013, and the iAuditor app had been in the App Store for around 15 months, and they had traction. People were using the app, but the investment would help them take it to the next level. 
we didn't know what to do. We, didn't, we never met a VC, a venture capitalist. Like, we didn't even know what this thing was. And so, um, you know, we're like, this is crazy. We, we knew nothing about fundraising or any of this stuff. And so um, we felt like we had to try and impress him somehow. And I got a, a Subway platter from the Subway shop up the road. It's like, let's get a big platter for him, you know. And uh, actually, funny story is we had... Um, uh, these clocks go up the day before because we could never work out what time zone our customers are in and we're Googling the time zone in order to say good morning or good afternoon or whatever, thank you for your email. And it's like, we should put clocks up with like the cities around the world underneath them and we'll look like this global you know, company. And so the day before he got there, we put them up and double-sided taped them on the wall. And of course, you know, while he's talking, you know, the Tokyo just peels off the wall and crashes on the ground and the guys are messaging each other and <laughs> I think they ran across into my garden shed where the lawnmowers where they had a little meeting in there going how are we going to re-stick these things they're all coming down and uh, you know, then someone's messaging each other going Lon- London's about to come down someone grab London and so um, uh, you know it was hilarious this kind of sideshow going on while we were trying to keep the, the venture capitalists entertained and, uh, and tell them about the business but um, yeah they, Rick, Rick saw the traction we had and, and um, the passion we had for the product and what we're doing and um, and said yeah they wanted to wanted to back us and we were the first company now Blackbird's you know giving out millions and um, we were the first company that they'd given out a million dollars to and uh, their fund back then was the fund one was um, had a maximum cap on it of a million dollars and so they put in a million but they said if you want to raise any more you can go and speak to some of our our sort of high net worth people who have invested in our fund and so I had four meetings with them and got another million dollars and so we had had two million dollars and uh, away we went that became our first funding round. Up until this point Luke was funding everything with the money he was making from the original documents business along with a little bit of money coming in from iAuditor but he needed the cash to help the business scale. I think we thought if we got more people that we could build more. And so I think there was a sense of if if we were to get some money, that would allow us to grow. But that wasn't what we were pursuing. I wasn't really, you know, I was, I was, I'd pitched a bill a few months earlier, but I didn't really know if that's what we needed. And I think money doesn't take away your problems. It probably just allows you to buy the next set of problems that you've got to solve for. And so we still had to solve our current problems. And um Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar were the main investors in the Blackbird Fund, the, the Fund One. And um, both those guys did a screening call. They kind of vetted me for the investment and did a call on Skype about an hour each where they um, you know, just asked all sorts of questions. And Scott, at the end of it, really kind of took a liking to it, said, I want to help if, if I can um, in any way. And so when I spoke to Mike and Scott, that's when I realized we, we can learn a lot here. And these are guys that have seen the movie before. They, they knew what problems we were going to face. And um, that's why I took the money. Once I met those guys, like we were in the process anyway, but I still wasn't sure. I was still like, I think this is a good thing, but I'm not really sure. I think we should do it. But once I spoke to Mike and Scott, you know, I think Atlassian at that point probably had just under a thousand staff or something. And uh, they were like, you know, way, way ahead of us. And um, I went, okay, I can learn so much from these guys and and um, we don't have to just continue to soldier on in the garage in Townsville. And um, and that, that helped us to no end. And coming up after the break, safety culture starts scaling. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Safety Culture raised $2 million in venture funding and then received a government grant of $1.79 million, bringing their total funding to almost $4 million. And that newfound cash immediately went into scaling. Luke started hiring people, a lot of people, and so they had to find an office because there was no way they could keep working from the garage. You know, started hiring as anyone that we could find, and uh, we put on I think uh, 21 new people in in three months, and uh, went from just a few of us. Went got an, got a thousand uh, meter office, which is like nine thousand feet in in the old system, and um, we had uh, 
eight of us in there in this massive office with a it had its own basketball court and a 70 seat cinema and stuff it was a financial services company that was way ahead of its time before us and they fitted it all out the place was empty for over a year and uh and you know they wanted three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year rent for it and i said our budget's about 70 and and uh we got it for 100 and so that's still our office in townsville and um and we just started hiring people and and um making all the mistakes that (laughs) that you make when you start on that journey Obviously, with that sort of like quick growth that that funding allowed you to start implementing, how were you thinking about making sure that you were growing at a sustainable rate and one which meant that the culture of your company didn't get ruined? Well, firstly, we didn't know what growing at a sustainable rate meant. We were just scrambling, trying to get as many people as we could. And so, uh, you know, I think in hindsight now we would know and look back, but uh, we tripled the company in three months, and uh, yeah, like culture, all these sorts of things change. And we had um, an engineer come from Sweden who basically walked in and said, "Look, everything you guys have built is rubbish, and I could rebuild the whole thing myself in three months." And um, and he's clearly is he like a genius, and uh, and so you know we were like, okay, then let's do that. And so he worked feverishly for. Uh, about two and a half months, and then said he was getting homesick and uh, and up and left, and um, and the guys, you know, to their credit, then picked up the pieces. There was no documentation; no one knew what he'd built. But um, it turns out it was it was actually on the right track, and and it w- was lucky for him that that um, we did it. But uh, you know that all that all impacts culture, and we just we were just you know hustling, trying to build stuff, and um, that project, which he said would take three months, took over a year. And nearly killed us all. You know, every month I was doing cust- uh, videos to customers and saying, "Next month we've got our new platform coming." You know, a lot of the problems that people had with like trying to sync their photos and things—it was just taking forever. As we built it on App Engine on Google's App Engine infrastructure, and um, there was a 60-second timeout limit on any request from the server, and so people would have all these files. They'd take like 100 photos in a in an inspection. They inspect a building or something. And it would be a massive file. And if it didn't upload the whole thing in 60 seconds, it would just cancel out. But on the device, we didn't tell them it canceled. So we had people saying, I've had my iPad sitting on my desk for three days syncing, and it still hasn't finished. And they'd be like, oh, no, it timed out after the first minute. And so, <laughs> you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, just typical startup tech companies scrambling and uh, customers all wondering why stuff doesn't work how it should. And so... Every month I'm saying this new platform's coming and after about three or four months I just stopped doing videos. I was like, well, I don't actually know anymore. And um, I remember our, our head of engineering, Anton Maskevoy, he he sat down with uh, Rick Baker from Blackbird. I was like, you've you got to tell the investors what's happening, you know, because uh, I think they're, they're tired of hearing the same thing from me. And Anton just said, he was the third employee at Atlassian, by the way, and he'd been there for years and then he left and joined us. And uh, he said point blank, this is the first time in my career I actually don't know if we're going to finish this and I don't know if we have the team to be able to do it. (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's reassuring. It's times of crisis where you really figure out the true value of your investors. Some investors might decide it's time to cut and run, while others will help you actually solve the problems in your business. And to Blackbird's credit, they stuck with safety culture while they sorted out their engineering issues. Yeah, and this is a credit to, to Blackbird, and I think they are the best VCs in the country. They they have backed us through stuff like this. Like it's now, you know, it's a success story, and people go, "Wow, that's awesome." But it's those times when the uncertainty was so high, and we didn't know the way forward. And um, you know, Rick had, and and Nikki was involved as well back then. But you'd just be like, "Okay, like, what are we working with? How do we figure this out?" And um, and they truly helped us. And so, you know, um, Anton asked all sorts of tough engineering questions that we just hadn't asked and in the end it all happened and um in uh, february 2015 we launched our new back end and uh everything worked fantastic in 2015 safety culture had a seed round of 6.1 million us dollars and then in 2016 raised a further 23 million that was uh index from london who led that round and uh yeah, again, it comes back to traction. We, we didn't go out looking for investment, but, um, you know, certainly we're happy to take meetings and chat to people and, and build relationships. As we've mentioned on this show before, finding the right investors for your business is important. 
You want people who believe deeply in your mission and who will help you take it to its full potential. The Index guys were great. They were good partners for us. And I actually had a customer from New York at my house in Townsville who had brought out to meet some of the team. And uh, we're having dinner. And I was like, oh, my God, I just realized I'm supposed to have a meeting with these VCs in London and on Skype. And I had to leave the table. And I went downstairs. And I was 15 minutes late. And that was my first meeting with um, Index and Jan Hammer and the other partners. They're sitting around this table. And I don't know why they waited 15 minutes. I, I think most people would have given up. But they were still sitting there 15 minutes later. And... Uh, I pop on the video screen and, and uh, you know, hi, I'm sorry, i got a customer at my house here. And it was a, the weirdest thing. But, you know, eight months later, um, we did the deal and, uh, and it worked. They came out. But I think that's the key in finding people who believe in what you're doing and not just investors that are trying to deploy capital that they've got, but people who actually understand your mission and your space and the problem you're solving and share some of that um, long-term belief in, in what's happening here and not just looking at it from a transactional point of view and saying, well, you guys have got great numbers and here's your growth rates and your churn and all the usual stuff. Like Those things should be looked at after the initial, what are we actually trying to achieve here and is this something worth doing? And, and then let's look at how well we're doing it. But um, I think a lot of times we come across investors and, you know, they, they pretend to sort of, you know, show some interest, but really all they want to do is see the numbers. And um, we would pretty much rule out anyone at that point. And even and then they get excited and they say, oh, this is a great business. We want to invest. It's like, yeah, no. And so, you know, I think we've been very uh, particular about who we've worked with. Then in 2018, Safety Culture raised a further 60 million Australian dollars, bringing their total valuation to 440 million. Lee Fixel, who led the round last year, he's a phenomenal investor and an incredible track record. But more importantly, he's just a really great guy to deal with. And um, he knew all about our business and um, he actually looked at it in 2015 and they didn't invest then. And um, this was last year in 2018. And um, he he said, I'd, I've missed out before. I'm, I don't want to miss out again. And uh, I'll fly to wherever you are. So he met me in, in um, I was in San Francisco that week. So he came over and uh, flew from Tokyo. And um, he just sat down and said, all right, just give me the full story. And within 90 minutes, that deal was done. And because uh, I think our previous valuation was 120 million. And um, he said uh, that was a year earlier, and he said, um, "Okay, I want to, I want to invest. I'm in. What's the price?" And uh, I remember I said uh, four hundred million. He was like, I won't, "I won't say exactly what he said, but he was like, that's a big price." And I said, "Yeah, but we're a great company, and uh, you got to pay a premium for good companies." And so, yeah, he said, "I'll have a term sheet to you within twenty four hours," and he did. And you know, I said, "Vanilla terms, no board seat. We we know what we're here to do, and we just need to keep getting on with it." And um, and you know, we'll ask for help along the way. And and he's this been fantastic. And yeah, he sent Patty McCord over, who was um, she wrote the book Powerful that came out of um, she was at Netflix for fourteen years with Reed and. Um, and she came out and spoke with the team and stuff. And so, um, yeah, Lee was just great, but just really straightforward to deal with. And all of our investors have been. And I think um, it's important that um, there's an efficiency that comes from that where people can trust each other and um, and you just know. You know, I asked the other founders that Lee had invested in um, similar questions. I did sort of, you know, some some background um, reference checks and spoke to different people. And, the, and they I asked them all, like, how would, I have a falling out with Lee. Like, how would we not get along? And the answer in you know a different way was said basically each time that just don't bullshit the guy. Like, just tell him exactly what happens at every step of the way. And then I asked Lee the same question at the end of it all. And I said, look, how will you and I not get along? What, what do we have to know? And um, he said, just tell me exactly what's happening and, and um, I'll be able to help you. But if you... Um, try and fabricate it or you're you know not telling me exactly what's going on then I'm out I'm out that day it happens and so um, you know he said I've invested in 72 founders and two you know that's only happened a couple of times and so I was like here's a guy I can deal with. Safety Culture now have around 300 staff with offices across the world including Sydney, Manila, Manchester, Kansas City and their original location of Townsville. It's a lot different managing a 300-person team uh, to managing, you know, six people in your garage. Um, so what have, <laughs> what have uh, you learned as a, as a leader um, as the company has evolved and at, like, how have you been able to evolve your skills to 
meet the needs of such a big and diverse workforce? I think I've learned that I'm not a good good manager of people. Like it's, uh, you know, managing 300 is very different to to five or 20 or 50, and they're different skill sets. And I think, um, uh, you know, as uh, someone who starts a company, you're constantly putting yourself out of a job from day one. Like in the beginning, you're doing all support, you're answering all the calls, you're working with the the product team, you're you know all these things, and gradually you just have to keep putting yourself out of a job. You know, it's it's at a point where you know I think um, my skill set is not managing hundreds and hundreds of people, and uh, I think last year we grew probably too quick. Um, you know, in eighteen months we went from eighty five people to about three hundred, and um, just felt like the wheels were falling off. We had to slow down. Culture was changing. Our customer service was dropping, and so I think that's one of the things you've got to follow your intuition. And um, late last year, I was like, let's just take a moment. Let's not, you know, we're hiring up to twenty-five people a month. So I was like, let's just stop for a bit, understand what's working well and what's not working well, and figure out what we can do to to improve that. And so, you know, we spent probably six months actually just um, taking stock and and looking at different parts of the business and. Um, supporting the people to be able to do their best work because a lot of people were junior people in in senior roles and we hadn't um necessarily gone and hired all managers there was you know lots of of engineers and just um ranges of different people and and it wasn't necessarily like you know a big company where you structure all these different departments and then you hire for them we were kind of just scrambling along and um people would come up with an idea and we'd go and do it and so we're now at a point where We've reset and now ready for the next stage. But, um, yeah, in the next couple of months, there'll be some announcements about a couple of the, the key people that are coming in to help me with that. And um, uh, I think it's taken me a while to get my head around exactly what it is we need. And um, as a, a sort of sole founder, Alan, who started with me, who's, who's still here, he's never he's probably smarter than me in some ways. He's never wanted to manage people and teams of people. And so he's continued to work as an engineer and he loves that. And um, and so it's largely been me trying to sort of be a, basically a sole founder in that sense in how we scale the business. And um, you kind of, I've had to think about what's the best way to, to find the right partners and people to, to now take it to a much bigger level. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger than anything I can do. So I think recognizing and having the self-awareness of, of what you're good at is part of it. You know, I'd, uh, you would hire people for roles that I didn't even know how to do those jobs. You know, I've never worked with, with executive teams and things. So we're constantly, um, you know, just trying to feel our way through. And um, fortunately, you know, we, we do enough things well that it's it's a successful outcome. But um, we make plenty of mistakes along the way and learn from that. So it's all part of it. And while Luke isn't involved in hiring staff these days, he still enjoys meeting everyone that comes into the business and learning about what brought them there but he has noticed a change in how people perceive him as the business has grown. You have this CEO effect where it's like, oh, the CEO's in the room. And I just never understood that that was happening. And I would be like, well, that's just me. And and let's all just work together. And so, you know, I've had to figure out, I guess, how to, you know, just try and make people feel comfortable and, and um and let's just all do our best work kind of thing rather than um, people feeling like whatever whatever the CEO says, you know, must be right, which is just pure crap. Like, you know, I have a thousand ideas a day and, you know, 980 <laughs> of them are probably terrible. So, you know, it's um, it's just not how it is. And I think once people, you know, you do start working with them, uh, then they realise it's like, oh, right, we're all in this together and we can just get on with it. So it's a, it's a funny sort of thing, but I think um, it's pretty normal. Everybody goes through it once you start scaling into sort of hundreds of people. And um, it's just the stuff that you don't ever think about when you start a company that you've got to contend with, that uh, people struggle to sometimes, you know, just say what they'd normally say because you're the CEO. So, you know, I've had to work on that and um, continue to make people feel relaxed and comfortable when they when they don't know you very well is an interesting challenge. Do you get imposter syndrome? Yeah, yeah, I think most days. Um, I would also say that uh, I have a feeling of incompetence most days. Like, you're constantly, as a founder, you're constantly taking on the next challenge. Like, when you when you start these companies and, and building them, you're constantly doing the next new thing. And so it means you're never actually good at it. And the minute you do master it, you've got to hire someone to do it. And so you're constantly, by nature of, of building a company, you're faced with new challenges all the time. And usually you've got to 
figure out how to get around them. And so the feeling of incompetence or people call it imposter syndrome where you're in situations where you don't feel like you're kind of the master of your domain or that you're even an expert on a subject, that's constant. That's most days for me. And it's um, it's just how it is. And I, I guess as to people who... And I've had jobs like when I worked in the in the service station or you know different things. That that were jobs that I could do well each day, and I knew that I could turn up, and I'm just going to do this job so well. But this is is not that. There's so much uncertainty, and I think um, sometimes I wish I had a job where you know I could just do it well each day, and and you feel good about it. But the reality is, most days it's hard, and um, and that's the nature of doing this. If it was easy, everyone would have done it. But it's the same as any other big challenge in life. If you climb Mount Everest, it's not fun most of the time. It's exhausting. It's hard, I would imagine. And I've you know done other difficult things. And so, you know, I think people expect that stuff's always fun and easy and and you know what you're doing, but you just don't. And um, that's also where the most, you know, growth and and often the excitement comes. I, that's my personality. I really thrive in that environment, but um, you do constantly feel like you're in over your head for sure. Safety culture also think carefully about how to build their own internal culture. So much so that the company brings the entire team together once a year for a week so that they can all be in the one space and see each other in person. They used to do these in Townsville. However, as the team has grown, they had to look for new locations. And this year, the team is going to New Zealand. Customers come in, I've shared the sort of vision and where we're going, the State of the Union address and all that kind of stuff. And um, and then we do a 24-hour ship it event at the end of the week where we build whatever we want to build and uh, and get it out in the world. And so it's expensive and it's getting harder because, you know, when there was 30 or 40 people, it was it would do it in Townsville. And then last year when we did it up there and there was a couple of hundred, it was, uh, you know, we're spilling out in the street. We had food stands and vendors out in the car park and, you know, we'd take over the movie theatre down the street that uh, we'd hire for a whole week and we could just go in and, and use that. And so it's a big investment. But when you've got people all trying to work together in different parts of the world and they're typing keys on a keyboard to each other. Um, what we noticed was that little problems sort of start to to grow when people don't have rapport. And so bringing them together, let them relax, do some great stuff, talk about work, talk about other stuff as well, and um, and just reunite everyone with why we're here. You know, bring customers in and, and share the impact. You know, and investing in that is worthwhile because you know if you've got you know 10 people in a team who are disengaged and not really sure why they're here then um, that's expensive that's even more expensive and so um, when you've got you know 300 people and growing I think it's a great investment to bring everyone together realign um, sort of why we're here share what we're doing and and reset the vision for the next 12 months 24 months and um, and then go away getting on and People talk about this stuff for years. Like it's, I think we're up to ship at number eight. We used to do them twice a year, and we're up to like ship at number eight or something now. And uh, and they've all got a theme, you know. And uh, it's, I think we had Hack to the Future, and and we've had uh, Hackman, and yeah, you know, all these different themes. And um, and people talk about what's their best one and all that kind of stuff. This is stuff that really you know bonds people. That's incredible that that you're able to do that. And yes, it is like very expensive to fly your entire team in from around the world. But then the payoff is that people just work together better. Is that something like tangibly that you notice that every time you do these events, um, that you bring all the staff together, that coming out of those events, people just seem to work more harmoniously? Yeah, absolutely, they do, and um, they then help each other more. And um, you know, they they have relationships with people in different offices that they can reach out to and and do things more efficiently. Instead of perhaps sitting on a decision, a customer asks a question, and and they now know the engineers that are working on that. They can ask them directly, or um, you know, the product manager, whoever. And so, um, it improves efficiency and communication across the whole business when there are personal relationships that people can work through. And um, yeah, it, it really does. Make Make a difference. I think in the scheme of things, it costs us about two and a half thousand dollars a person all up because some are flying from the US and the UK and, and other places, and others are just going from Sydney. So it works out about two and a half thousand a person per year, um, and that's in the scheme of things, I think, very reasonable. You started this back in like 2004, 2019 now. Um, when you look at how far you've come in that time, how do you feel? Um, you haven't really stopped to think about it, but. 
look, we're definitely building something very special. I think it's got a long way to go. I think we've achieved an incredible amount so far um, with an amazing group of people. And um, the stories that we get from our customers, you know, people, it, it, it sounds boring, like workplace inspections and things, but it, um, it is transformative for people. And a lot of our customers are people, they're not IT people, they're people just doing their jobs each day. And all of a sudden, they're getting recognized for rolling out, you know, an app that, that changes their whole workflow across all their teams. And um, people have got Order of Australia medals for the impact it's had on the community. Um, people get, you know, $10,000 cash prize for initiatives they've put in place. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the things I remember is a guy from Canada phoned me once and said, I've raised two adult disabled children now, my wife and I, over the last 25 years, and um, our lives have been a battle the whole way. And um, these last few years, I'm the I Auditor champion in my workplace. And, you know, he broke down crying on the phone. He's saying, this is this is the first time I felt like I'm actually contributing to something that people accept me for and I'm winning at because my whole life has been such a struggle. And uh, at work, people now come to me and I'm, I'm the guy that did that. And uh, it's, it's pretty emotional. And, and I, you hear these stories every day. Um, you know, the other week I was in London and heard the United Nations were using I Auditor for assessing security checkpoints in Afghanistan when they set up checkpoints and things. And so... It's just that's, I think, what we're most proud of. And um, that's what I look back on and say, you know, that's, that's what we did together as a team. We, we've built that and um, we've got a lot more now to go and uh, the opportunity just keeps getting wider and, and um, we're kind of at the forefront of that. So we're now, you know, doing stuff with IoT and sensors and, and, um, and broadening what we do. We've got the ability uh, for people to be able to hit a button when there's a problem and wake people up in the night and say, you know, hey, you need to attend to this, override silence. And everyone sleeps with their phones on silent now. We're dealing with teams in the workplace and uh, they have things go wrong. How do you communicate to them? So really interesting challenges that um, we're tackling and uh, something that, that really excites us. So I think um, we haven't really stopped to, to kind of think about uh, where we're at. We're just ploughing ahead. We're um, probably going to um, do a uh, bit of a funding round more so for the early employees um, this year and um, that'll be really interesting. It's great to see them get some rewards for that and, and uh, yeah, we'll just continue to push ahead. So there's lots to do. Thanks to Luke Nia for taking the time to speak with me for this story. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research assistance from Jasmine Mee Lee. Editing and mixing by James Parkinson. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. That's it for season one of Building a Unicorn. We hope you enjoyed all the interviews this season, and we're currently looking for a sponsor who can help us fund the show on a regular basis for season two. If that's you, then please reach out to us at unicorn at lawson.media. We'll be back in a few months with season two, but in the meantime, I encourage you to check out our other podcast series, Moonshot. It explores the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. Thanks for listening.